Psalm 51. Uh, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inner inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for I will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We are back in the Psalms for a few weeks. Uh, If you're a visitor here, uh, we preached um, on on Psalm 1 to 49, and now we're doing sort of 50 to 100. We'll break when we get there, do something else, and then come back and finish the whole book. We just didn't think that we could cope or just uh, do the whole of the Psalms. We would be here for eternity. So uh, for the next week, few weeks, you've got Psalms, and today you've got Psalm uh, 51. I want to suggest that actually, I know this is not something that you would normally say, that, that the Psalm 51 treats, treats us to how to be crushed with guilt well. What does that mean? Well, certainly we know that we can be crushed under guilt and it can capture us and change us forever and even change our behavior. But what Paul, what, what Paul no, David experiences is that guilt can come, it can crush us, crush us and it can be well with us as well. What makes a, a, Christian, a Christian is not that he gets discouraged 
And it's not that he doesn't sin. And it's not that even that he feels miserable about things that happen uh, in his life. What makes a Christian is the connection that he has with Jesus and actually how that shapes the way that he thinks and reacts and therefore speaks. It's nothing to do with the discouragement, actually. It's all to do with Jesus and the impact of that discouragement on our life. Now, the Psalms were uh, the main songbook of the early church. They were designed by God to awaken. They were designed by God to express and shape uh, the thoughts and feelings of Jesus' disciples as they built the new church. And we learn from some of these Psalms how to think about discouragement, how to think when guilt grabs hold of us and we learn from the psalms how to deal when we have regret that cannot almost be changed and these psalms served them so well when they built the church who do you think was saved at pentecost well, they were all perfect people that were, they had no regrets, no guilt, no problems. They were just a perfect bunch of 3,000 that came and said, hey, look, we're here. It's wonderful. Save us. We are so perfect. We can transform the world. No, think again. What sort of people were at Pentecost? They were people like you and I. And what did they bring to Pentecost? They bought the same packages that you and I bring to our own Pentecost. So the Psalms will show us how to be discouraged well, how to regret well, and how to cope with our guilt well. But first, let's look at David's downward spiral of his sin. Psalm 51, uh, one of the few Psalms that we have, gives us actually pinpoint accurate historical origin. The, the heading of the psalm goes like this, the, the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. So we know exactly what this psalm uh, is about. What happened to Bathsheba is well known. And we find it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 to 5. We won't do the bit about going to war because everybody preaches sermons on where David should be. So we just miss that one out. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon. That's the detail. One afternoon. When David arose, uh, arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Just for those that want to know what would happen if she was ugly, you'll have to ask the Lord that when you go to heaven. So I don't know. But she was very beautiful. And David sent deliberately and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. He took her by force. He took her because he was the powerful person she was not. He took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then 
she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent a message to David saying, David, I'm pregnant. So what did David do? He tried to cover this up. He, 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 he gets Uriah to try and come home from the battle that he should have been at so that he would sleep with his wife and then everything would be all right because they would uh, have a baby and they could say, well, this is Uriah's baby. Wow. The fact is that, uh, uh, you know, who, I mean, can you imagine what that would have... I mean, what, you know, it doesn't look like us, you know, all that, I don't know. We can't go there, can we? But Uriah was an honourable man. He said, I'm not coming back. I'm not going to leave my friends to die. So I'm not coming back. And David then panics. And he thinks, what should I do with this? So he then thinks the only way out of this is to kill the bloke. So he gets Uriah and he stands him on the front row of the battle, knowing that his chances of living are slim. Uriah dies. So David quickly marries Bathsheba and covers the sin that way. It's one of the most understated sentences in the Bible, 2 Samuel 11, ends with these words, and the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. (laughs) And you want to go, yeah, not off. (laughs) I bet he was stamping his foot in heaven. You you just think, whoa, that's just uh, great. (laughs) So you wouldn't like to have been, would you, around while David is doing the washing, while God's doing the washing up in heaven, when, when, you're, when David has done all this sort of stuff on earth. Not that God does the washing up in heaven, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so God sent a prophet. Uh, sent a, please do understand that, that God sends prophets. The prophetic word is sent to us. And so David uh, receives this prophet. And the the prophet brings this parable uh, to pronounce David's condemnation. And Nathan then says to him, you, you are that man. And you think, that must have been a powerful moment. And then he asks him, he looks at the king of Israel in the eyes. And he he sort of says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And David breaks down and he confesses and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan astonishingly says this, the Lord has put away your sin. We'll just come back to that a bit later. But isn't that an incredible statement of grace? Right at the very beginning, right at the very point, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, uh, because you've scorned uh, the, because you've scorned God, your child will die. Wow. That statement is incredible. The Lord has put away your sin. It is outrageous in itself, isn't it? When you think about it, Uriah is dead. Bathsheba effectively has been raped. The baby will die and Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. Just like that. Just as easy as that. David sinned badly. Well, I think so. Do you not think so? Uh, This was not a good one. He he ordered murder. He raped a girl. He lied. He despised the word of the Lord. He scorned God and God says... uh, 
I'll put away his sin. And I, I don't know whether you've done things like this, but this is my sort of feeling. I sort of begin to think, what sort of righteous judge are you? <laughs> uh, you don't just pass over rape, surely, murder, lying. Righteous judges don't do that. Perhaps that's just my thinking. Uh, what if we went on the streets? What if we all said, right, I want you to go out now and I want you to change the name from David to Sydney, uh, whatever. And Sydney Jones from Wales. And I want you to go out and say, would you forgive this bloke? And then describe the situation and say, now would you forgive? What would you find on the streets of Wrexham or in Deeside or in Oswestry, Street or actually in the world? What would you do if you described the sin of Sidney Jones? Now, I would resonate, and, and everybody does resonate with the feelings of, of anger and hurt for her, for Uriah the Hittite, for the family. And I would be outraged uh, at God's behavior here, except for one thing, that the Apostle Paul shares my outrage, and then explains how this can be done. And it is an extraordinary look back into the Psalms. It is slightly complex, slightly theological. We'll go over it quickly, and then we'll move on to move on. So bear with me uh, in this. God's outrage, or outrageous passing over. Why do, you, why do I need to speak on this? Because God has passed over our sin. and We need to understand what an outrage it is, not just for him, but what it is for us. Because sin in the kingdom of God is sin. It doesn't matter whether this guy did that. Yes, the concept. But the, the truth is this, the Lord has passed over our sin. And it is as unfair for David as it is for us. So don't let's first judge David because we are the David of our day and the Lord has passed over our sin. So in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 and 26, this is one of the most important sentences that you will read in the Bible concerning how Jesus relates to the Psalms and the Old Testament in general. general. It is complicated. We will do it quickly, but then that will just leave you wandering in the ether, and then we'll move on. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over what former sins. Now that's exactly what you read in 2 Samuel 2.13, which what happened to David, that God passed over his sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that is complex. Why is that complex? Let me try and explain this a little bit further. In other words... The outrage we feel when God seems to simply pass over sin would be a good outrage if God were just going to sweep it under the carpet and ignore it. That would, that's the outrage. The outrage is, why has he got away with this? The outrage, actually, is why have you, 
Why have I got away with this? Why does it seem that God sweeps this sin under the carpet? He's not, is the answer. He's not. God sees from the time of David down the centuries to the death of his son Jesus who would die in David's place. The Bible tells us that David was saved because of a future grace in Jesus Christ. He was saved by the faith of God's mercy and God's future redeeming work in Jesus. And it's this, what you, we, this, this is what united David, Jesus, and the sin and God all together. And in God's all-knowing mind, David's sins are counted not as his own, but in the future uh, on Jesus. That's how this works. They're counted as Jesus' sins. And Christ's righteousness, who has not yet appeared, is counted back through history upon David. So David is declared righteous. His sins are forgiven because he is believing in a future redeemer. We've sung it. Jesus, our redeemer. David was believing in it. He was saved because of it. And God justly passes over David's sin. Not because of what David had done, but because what Jesus had done on the cross or would do. And the death and the work of the Son of God is absolutely outrageous in regard to sin. Because all sin has these emotive and emotional connections to it. We, we all categorize it and we all think, ah, all the sort of feelings that rise that, uh, about sin. And it's because... That what it's because Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God that God can pass over adultery, murder, and lying. And we need to have that in our psyche. Because we need to know we must not have in a psyche that God can forgive some sins and not all sins. Christ died once. For all, where, whatever that person is. And that's why David's, uh, David's freedom, as it were, is absolutely outrageous. And let me say this, you and I are no different to David. Your freedom that you have, your passing over, your declaring of not guilty, the fact that you are declared righteous, as am I, is equally as outrageous. It's just madness that you should have this from God. We shouldn't look at David and go, rat bag, because I am equally a rat bag as him. In fact, in here there are 70 rat bags, actually. And if you don't think you are a rat bag, then you shouldn't be here really, because this is what we're going to go and we're going to teach that we are rat bags, saved by grace. Is that in the Bible? Not sure. So... What should you do then? That's how David is forgiven from his sin, justified and in the presence of God. But what Psalm 51 does is it actually describes how he felt and what he thought as God laid hold of him. Now some people will say like this, you shouldn't feel stuff when you're a Christian. Actually when you become a Christian, you know, 
you know, that my chains fell off, my heart was free, and I rose, went forth, and followed thee, and I floated into heaven. Poppycock. Absolute rubbish. David felt, understood the exact nature of his sin. All the time he did. But he understood also the parallel of what Jesus had done at the same time. I think this is me, that we need both a full understanding of the intensity and the depth of sin and a full understanding of the intensity and grace of God. They run parallel. And actually, if you dismiss this, you dismiss the incredible work of the cross. If you forget sin, and you forget all the feelings that come with that, then what did Jesus die for? Those are the things that remind us of the wonder of the cross. We look at this, you think, ah, Jesus died for me to be released from this. Jesus died once and for all by his life and death. He purchased our forgiveness. He provided our righteousness. We can add nothing to it at all. But in view of the holiness of God and the evil of sin, then we are going to have to need to appropriate that which has been given to us. And Jesus actually tells us what to do with it, how to deal with it. And we pass it over, don't we? And it's got lost in sort of almost like religious services and things that we do uh, when, when the royal family get married or somebody like that. We forget that Jesus actually taught us, give us this day our daily bread. And what did he ask us to do this day? And forgive us our debts. He asked us to do it on a daily basis. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus is doing something because he knows that you haven't received it or anything like that. He's asking us to do it because it is fully purchased, fully fully secured on the death of Jesus and actually releases us on a daily basis from the feelings that come with us. It's something that we should do. That's why you get things like in the Bible, don't let your anger, you know, don't go, don't go to bed when you're angry. You know, all that sort of stuff. Deal with it. And here he comes, say, this is the, this is the constant release and wonder of the cross. I can come, forgive me. I've been like this today. I've said this, done this. And Jesus goes, yeah, okay, dealt with that on the cross. And you walk free from it. You just walk free from it. He isn't, well, I've got to come this and confess this now. What will he do? I'm not sure. Is he there? Is he hearing? No, that sin's too big. Why? He just says, no, bring it, go. Here comes your release. It's just this wonderful. This day, you can be released. You, can, you don't have to know. You can live with your guilt well. You can live with your regret well. You can live with your discouragement well. Because you come and Jesus says, yeah, forgiven. Because it's all done. So what did David do? He responds uh, to his sin. He turns to his only hope, the mercy and the love of God. How should we deal with, with our sin? Turn to God. Turn to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. You do it, Lord. Have mercy According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant, 
God, David knew the way through. David was a man of the word. He knew that although that it was unfair, that if he turned to God, mercy would come. That's what, what, what God wants. Do you know, sometimes it is fair, unfair. People sin against us. Circumstances happen. We can turn to God and know mercy. And we know mercy because we know the word. And David knew this. David knew this scripture from Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord, a God, of, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love who for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, for who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. David knew. There were guilty who by some mysterious supernatural work of redemption would not be counted as guilty, that would be counted as forgiven. And David in Psalm 51 goes to God and he, he sort of grabs hold of these great promises that he knew in the word of God and he, and he cries them out, have mercy on me. The first thing that he does is that he says, I, I'm helpless with this. I turn to you. What should we do in regard to sin? We turn helpless to Jesus. And we just say, I need you in this. You're the only answer that I have in this. This is too much for me. I need to give this to you. And that's it. It, isn't, it is not yours to carry. Hear me, people. Prophecy, word of God, whatever you might describe this, this is not yours to carry. That's what Jesus, that's what, that's what David comes to. He comes to this magnificent realization that he has sinned much. And he thinks, now what do I do? You cannot live with that amount of sin and holding it in your life. It will bust your head and your heart. So David goes, I'll give it to you. Have mercy on me. If you are holding it, it will hold you. If you are thinking about it, it will distort your head. If it's in your heart, it'll explode your heart. If you give it to God, he'll set you free. That's the way he turned to God. Secondly, he prays. Oh no, sorry. Oh, it should have done that, shouldn't it? He prays for cleansing. Uh, That's it. Press the button, Nigel. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful promise to know. If I engage in God, if I go to God, what are the consequences? Whiter than snow. (laughs) That's all right, isn't it? It's not a wagging finger. You know, it's not that sort of God that goes, it's not like, no, whiter than snow. Hyssop was the branch used by the priest to sprinkle blood on a house that had a disease in it and to declare it clean. Wow. And David's crying out 
that the ultimate priest would forgive him and count his sin clean. And Jesus comes as the ultimate high priest, sprinkles his blood, and we are clean. We are clean. We are clean. You cannot be any more clean. The problem is not your cleansingness. The problem is how you view your cleansingness. The problem is not that you are clean. The problem is that you think you are not. And what is this? Don't do that. No, every one of us, however we have sinned, according to our repentance and faith in God, we are whiter than snow. Jesus is not a disabled priest, as it were, at all. Jesus is a perfect priest in body, in heart and mind. Everything that he did was perfect. And this perfect priest purchased complete forgiveness for us. He paid the full price. Now that doesn't replace our asking. Surely it's the basis of our asking. It doesn't say, well, I don't need to ask that because I'm clean. No, it's because, because he is like, I keep coming and asking and asking and asking again. I do it all by knowing that I will be forgiven. I don't know whether you watched this last night, but we were saddos. We watched Des O'Connor last night being interviewed. For some of you going, who is Des O'Connor? Des O'Connor had been married, had had four marriages, of which one of those marriages, he said that, he, he, that they were still fallen out, that they were not speaking. I don't know whether you caught this. And he looked, and he looked upon the, the life, and, and it was a, a marriage, and, and, and you, could see, you could see that this is, you know, who, you know his first wife, and he's, he was married to his career, and his second wife married to his third wife married to I think the, the trouble is that he's getting so old now, he has no career, so he's got to be married to this one. So he went like that, and he went along, and he just go, goes along. And, you, and I, did, I was sitting there thinking, all that baggage, all that stuff, all that sort of thing that he's brought from one marriage into another and all that sort of stuff that he carried. And what can we know? We can ask and the baggage goes whiter than snow. <laughs> it's fantastic. You know, if you say to Jesus, please cleanse me, he doesn't say, then just let me think about that for a moment. He's quick. No, yes. Yeah, fully. Not a problem. Not only that, he confesses the seriousness of his sin. And we need to do that before God. It's no good saying it's Stephen Belinda's fault. It isn't that. That doesn't change anything. Oh Lord, it's Stephen Belinda's fault. What does that change in the heavenlies? doesn't change a fig actually it's really interesting that when people want to deal with sin that's what we do we get him before God and we tell him it's not me it's him and actually the way through is to turn to God to receive that and actually to say it as it is with God to just be honest and you see this David confesses five things to God and I think they're very releasing he says uh, first one he says is that he can't get this sin out of his mind Verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's ever before me. Let me tell you this, let me say this, we'll move on from this. Only Jesus can move that sin that is ever before you. That's the way that it works. How do you know 
whether you are dealing with your sins and carrying them. Here's a good question. Are they ever before you in the effect? What does that mean? Do they paralyze you? Do they shape the way that you do things? Do they affect the way that you manage your life? If they are, they are forever before you. No, what, what he just does, he says, look, God, have mercy on me. This blasted thing, it's, it's before me day and night. It's almost as if I can't get rid of it. And Jesus goes, I'll have it. I'll have it. Secondly, he says this, and it's a really interesting thing. He says, I have sinned against God. What? How does that work? Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil. Now that doesn't mean that Bathsheba, Uriah, the baby weren't hurt incredibly. They were hurt incredibly. But let me just say this to you. Your sin that you do and that I do is not greater, that we do to one another, is not greater than the sin against God. And we need to get that into perspective. Because sometimes people come and say to us, so-and-so has hurt me. No, they've hurt you a little, they've hurt God much. And we mustn't get, we get very precious about this, don't we? We get sort of, oh, you know, I can't live now, I'm, you know, frozen by this thing. No, that is, you put, please put that into biblical perspective. Biblical perspective is small sin against you, big sin against God. This is what David realized, and this is what releases him. He realizes that the major thing is against God. And until we get that in our blood, because sometimes we think, oh no, you know, it, the Hawkins is said again, you know, sorry, you never said, but the, the Hawkins have done this and they've done that. The Hawkins are minor compared with what has happened to God. And sometimes we do, we, we elevate situations, they become massive in our eyes. In, and it's not true. We need to put them down and elevate ourselves. How's the answer with this? They need to repent. What is repentance? It's to God first. It's to people secondary. That's what we need to do. Thirdly, David vindicates God, not himself. There's no self-justification. There's no defense. There's no... He goes and he says this. I've been a prat. That's basically... Oh, it's a pregnant fish. I'm right. That's what he does. He sort of says... And it's really interesting that that is so difficult because of the pride of man. Pride of man is always it's somebody else. Yet he comes before God. He said, against you, only you have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He doesn't say, well, he says God is justified. He actually almost implies that if God wants to deal with him badly, that that would only be fair. He said, no, 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 you're innocent, I'm bad. <laughs> it's radical God-centered repentance this is, isn't it? It's, it's not anybody else. No, you're right, I'm wrong. You know, it's the, it's the sorry word. Get it out there, come on. You know, you know, the fact that I'm still breathing is just mercy. <laughs> I don't deserve a fig here. I, I'm, I'm the sinner here. Wow. Don't blame, admit. Don't blame, admit. David, fourthly, uh, in, uh, intensifies his guilt by drawing attention to the fact that 
It's always been there. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was bought in iniquity. <laughs> I was bought in iniquity. My mother conceived me like this. For some people, they use their inborn difficulties to diminish their own personal guilt. Well, it wasn't me. It's my, you know, it's, you know, my, my, my parents. My parents were like this. Therefore, I am like this. Therefore, I, you know, I can't do that and I can't do the other. It, it's this. David does the opposite. For him, the fact that he committed adultery, murdered and lied, are expression of something much worse. He is by nature sinful. <laughs> he is. He's not saying, well, it's, it's dad's fault. Now look at the father I had, you know, didn't choose me, didn't notice that I was supposed to be a king. You know, what's up with that business then? You know, didn't treat me as he should have done. You know, my dad should have recognized me. You know, what did he do? He elevated everybody else. What did my sons do? They went for war, war to war. What did I do? I was out in a field carrying sheep. What, what, what did he ask me to do? He didn't ask me to go and fight. No. He said to me, can you take the sandwiches? I ate my dad. I need inner healing on this issue. <laughs> what, did da- what did David say? No, absolutely not. I'm corrupt all the way through. It's me. I was born corrupt. I am corrupt. It's me. It's just the way it is. It's wonderful. Isn't that ever so releasing? It's not Phil Harmon. It's me. Isn't that just wonderful? He said, it's sort of like saying, well, and actually, if it were not for Jesus, I would not be. That's the sort of stuff. <laughs> and, he just, uh, and we need to do that so much. It's all everybody else. No, it's not everybody else. No, come on. We were corrupt. We were born in sin. We were enemies of God. The wrath of God stood against us, but the grace of God came into our lives. It's me. Stand up and say, born like it. It's a, perhaps you should do that. No, I won't matter. Just turn. I was born sinful. We should do something. You don't hear that minister. All those come forward. Born sinful. Come on. It is so releasing. It's so, so releasing. It would stop all these different organizations. They have all these incredible ministries that are touching people because of the 19th generation that have harmed you. You know, because, I'm, because my generations are Lloyds and they came from Vikings doesn't mean that I will rape and pillage, does it? Come on. I was born in sin. It's me. I was conceived in it. Just admit it. It frees you. He frees David. He didn't need ministry. He just realized, actually, I'm like it. I am by nature an object of wrath. It's just right. Come on. It is so releasing. I can forgive me dad now. It's just so simple, isn't it? It wasn't his fault. I was born like it. And what about my mum? My mum always sick. It's true. Was it my mum's fault? No, I'm born in sin. No, come on. Five, David admits, we ought to move on quick, haven't we? David admits that God has been his teacher, that he's made him wise. David has done many things. And then he admits that sin has got the upper hand. He says, behold, you delight in truth and inward be and teach me. You know, I should know better. And the reason that I don't know better is that I've left the word of God. I've stopped being in the Word of God. I've stopped praying. I've stopped meditating on it. I've got other things to do. Should have been at war, as we probably know. I've left the Word of God. If you have left the Word of God, you are in a very vulnerable position. If you're not communicating with your father, you have stood in a very... And David's realizing this. He's sort of saying, 
This is what happened. He's not saying, oh, well, it was Bathsheba's, she'd have had a swimming costume on, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, he's not saying that. He's actually just sort of, he's saying, no, I moved away from my relationship with God. Fourthly, oh, there you go. He pleads for renewal. He is passionately committed to being changed by God. This is our answer to sin. And he does it. And I can only just highlight some of these. And we'll go over these quite quickly. But, you know, he says this. I don't want to stay like this. I want to be changed. In some people, their identification is that they are like that. Oh, that's Phil Harmon. He's the fragile guy that always responds to ministry when we ask them for the brokenhearted to come forward. Huh? How long has he been doing that? What, 35 years he's been doing this for? No, the purpose of this exercise with God and with David is that he would be changed forever. The purpose of anything that you have gone through that has caused you harm, that has caused you difficulty, is that so that you would not stay the same. If you are still the same, then you need to come back to God and go, I need to be changed by this, Lord. So, firstly is this. He prays to God that God would confirm to him his presence. 11. Cast not me away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Some have argued this could be a, this is, is an argument for the fact that you can lose your salvation because of the words, cast me not and take not. It is not. Uh, they are holy and fully wrong. This is important. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit, it is about understanding where sin has taken us. It is about need and desire. It's about who enables us, who strengthens us, who helps us. It's also knowing what will keep us. What will keep us? Your presence will keep us. Your Holy Spirit will keep us. He then prays for his heart and his spirit that they are right and firm. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. God, renew a right spirit within me. He wants the instability to go. He wants a right spirit. He wants a firm spirit. He doesn't want to live like this. No, I want to be this and not that. Don't want to do that. Don't want to waver any longer. Please, would you cause me to be stable when things come? You can know when God brings, when, when people, as a work of God in people's lives, because when the situation comes back to them that was familiar to one that they'd had before, they walk through it. It's not that the second one is painful. It's not that the first one was painful. It's just that the presence of God and moved upon them. A right spirit was in them and they walked through it. And some of us, if you've been in leadership, you sort of hold a breath when you see that, that situation coming back again. You think, oh, oh no, it's, it's, it's similar. And then you see the work of God, the presence of God come with them. And you sort of begin, oh, God's at work in these people. It's wonderful. Verse 3, he prays for the joy of God's salvation, for the Spirit that is, uh, for the Spirit to come upon him, rather than him being a person that exploits people. Look at this, verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken 
rejoice. Restore me, the God of our salvation, and uphold me uh, with a willing spirit. I'm just going to deal with something here. Um, this is one of these things that you should deal with over months, usually with men. But let's, we, we've, got a, we've got both here. Let's talk about sex together. I'm really glad because if I, I do that sometimes with my kids here, they just die. But Rachel's out. Let me just say this. Nowhere in this psalm does he pray directly about sex. And yet this is a sex problem. It all started with sex. The deceit, the leading to murder. Sigmund Freud actually says that everything starts from sex. It may do in your life, pal, but there you go, not in the Bible. But, but David does not see things in that way. Now hear me on this. Why? Why isn't he crying out for sexual restraint? Why don't you read in Psalm 51, Oh Lord, deliver me from sexual restraint. Why isn't he praying, O oh Lord, provide for me great men of stature so that when I sin, I can go to Phil Harmon and confess my sins together. Have mercy on me, Lord, and provide to me great men who I can talk, with, uh, talk, to, talk to them about sex. And that is one of the environments that we've created. seems that everybody wants to talk about sex, including pastors now. But David doesn't see it that way. Why isn't he praying that? Why isn't he praying that God would protect his eyes and so that he would never look and see a half-naked woman ever again? And we sort of do that, you know, must, oh my goodness me, you know, um, here comes so-and-so, so must not look, the, uh, Lord help me to not look at that woman. And he's, there's no sort of prayers in there about lustful looking, accountable men, you know, all that sort of stuff. He doesn't do it. And the reason is this, that sexual sin is a symptom and not a disease. It's a symptom of sin. And what David wants to deal with is he wants to deal with sin. He doesn't want to deal just with the, the product of one of the side products. He wants his sin to be dealt with. And David has realized that there, if there is joy and gladness in salvation, if there is satisfaction in his God, if there is pleasure that can be found in his relationship with God, then he will not powerfully waver. That's what he's come to. We are enticed because of our relationship with God, not because there's somebody out there that has invented hot pants and bought them back in the year 2011 and doesn't wear a bra to church, men. It's true. The reason that you and I waver in regard to sex and sexuality is that our thoughts are not where they should be. And our thoughts of where they should be is on him. And it's him. You can say, no, I get all my pleasure from him. So when you look at you know, the old and the things of earth, the things of earth are pornography. The things of earth are the, the sort of films that you, those are the things of earth. You'll go to, no. How can you say no? Because he's my pleasure. He's my satisfaction. He's my enjoyment. Everything about him surpasses this. And on the other side, guys, you need to be great lovers. 
We haven't got time to do that. We're just going to pass that by. But if you, if you are not good lovers in your marriage, as Christ loved the church, and you are not loving husbands and wives, loving one another, then you can give yourselves opportunity to waver. Don't do that. Have quality marriages and quality relationship with God. The presence of God brought joy and gladness. This is profound wisdom. It is. It's, you know, you see these things and you see, I, I don't, you know, people, are, well, you know, I'm a, a, a real ale liker. You, know. you think people, are, I've heard this, this has been interesting. I don't know, I'm just going to be a naughty now because I'm just going to use it as an example. Apparently, apparently, Rupert is obsessed with whiskey. So is one of our honourable men of society in the town, Jonathan Burroughs. How can you have a doctor obsessed with whiskey? If you say to him, double malt, he's likely to kill you because of the, the, and this sort of stuff. And it's just, and I'm only just using it naughty, and I don't mind them drinking whiskey. But I think it's really interesting that what happens is because Phil Harmon needs it. I'm just getting close. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. More. Oh, that way. Okay. It's, it's just really interesting that we can seek our pleasure and satisfaction. He's just come back in, so he doesn't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> We can go. We can find our pleasure elsewhere. Find our enjoyment elsewhere. Single whiskey. He asked the Lord, the God, to bring him joy and overflow with praise. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Praise is what we do when the obstacles are out the way. How can you know? How do you know? How do you know how I am? God made you know. Here's David saying, ah, I'm I'm bursting through in worship. Just been, been, you know, I'm being liberated before the Lord. Just go, this this is, in this one of the things, get rid of the obstacles, go before God. Why? Praise comes and suddenly I'm liberated before the Lord. That is wonderful, you know. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth. I will declare your praise. I'm bursting through. Make my joy irrepressible. Five. He asks that the upshot of his life will be effective evangelism. Oh, even in here, verse 13. Then, when all this is done, I will rejoice and I'll write a book about it. And I will help all those saddos that have been through murder, rape and whatever. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I will teach transgressions your ways and sinners will return to you. So he says this, the... David is not content to be forgiven, filled with the Spirit, joyful, have a great sex life, etc., etc. He says the product of this is that it goes out. And the product of the changed life, forgiven sin, redeemed, forgiven, restored, ransomed, all that sort of stuff has done for it, is that we will sell transgressors. It isn't for you. It isn't just that I've got here. It's the free gift. No, it's the free gift of you so that you can proclaim the free gift. If it stays with you, the job is not yet done in God meeting with you. There it is. Six. Which brings us to the last point, And we're over. David had discovered that God had disciplined him in love. Wow. And that he was a broken and contrite heart. 
He says this, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This hurt. This did hurt. But it wasn't Stephen Belinda. It was a worker of God. And he acknowledged this. When God is disciplining us, it's not so easy. Then he goes on, he said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise those. Being a Christian actually does mean that we are called to be broken and contrite. Broken and contrite is not against the liberation of the spirit. It's not against uh, um, evangelism or joy. They actually go hand in hand. And certainly, how do we know that? Because God doesn't despise them. God says, I don't despise this. And I believe they're great foundations. The contrite and broken comes from the Hebrew word dorkor, or darkor, or whatever it is, meaning to be crushed, meaning to be crushed into pieces. It tells us that we have deserved nothing, received everything, and receiving everything must never be detached from deserving nothing. (laughs) I don't deserve this. I've been given this. We can't just, I've been given this. Ha ha! No, I didn't deserve this. I've been given this. I'm like this. But look at this. And what we do is we have a scales. And it's wrong. These are too magnificent. We should be broken and contrite and joy and gladness. And joy and gladness comes from looking at that. And then looking at the cross. We go, oh, look at that. And we go, God forgave me. And we should not be proud and arrogant and just, just joyful. It should be that we should be, we know what we've come from. This is what the Isaiah said this, and then a quote from Calvin. And then if you can follow that with a song, it's up to you. Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus is the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to receive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. John Calvin said this, Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state but he has, until he has compared himself with the majesty of God. That's right. Amen.